Hello, and welcome to November 4th. I'm Toby Moffat, your host. My co-host, Abigail, is off today, so you'll, you'll have just me here. If you've been uh, with us for the past several months, you know that we created this show called November 4th to get people to start to think about the day after the election. And from our point of view, hopefully the day after Donald Trump is defeated. And we wanted them to not just think about how we repair the damage or rebuild America, but how really we reimagine it. And so we've looked at climate change. We've looked at immigration and the need for immigration reform. We've looked at the Department of Justice, which has become the Department of Injustice and what we do about all that and how we restore integrity uh, with the, in the rule of law. We've looked at education and, and what COVID has done uh, and what the implications of that might be. And so here we are, uh, not a week away, but less than a week away from November 3rd. And we're coming up on the day after that election when hopefully we'll be able to imagine uh, a new country with new leadership and new ideas. So this episode is very important because of what's going on out there around the country. And that is attempts to suppress the vote in a number of states, probably in, in almost all states, and certainly in states that have leadership in governors who have more or less blatantly dedicated themselves to uh, suppressing the vote, to preventing people from voting, to creating obstacles to people voting, and to creating doubt about whether the vote will be counted and the vote total will be accurate. And so we now have also, in, in addition to voter suppression and long lines, we have distrust on all sides of the political spectrum in our political process. And so that's going to be another thing that we're going to have to reimagine as to how we repair it. So today on voter suppression, we really tried to take a look at where we think it's most likely to occur, but also where it's most likely to occur where it could make a big difference in the presidential election. And so we'll have guests from uh, Georgia. We'll have guests from Florida. We'll have guests from Arizona and a guest from North Carolina, all of whom are, are on the ground right now fighting against efforts to suppress votes. We're going to start with Portia White. And Portia is uh, with Let America Vote, great organization, uh, was, was formerly uh, the, the Georgia leader, has Georgia roots, I imagine. And Portia, it's, it's, great, to, it's great to have you here. Before we, before we dive into this, let me also say we'll have uh, Reginald Balding from Arizona coming up soon. He's a state rep, chairman of the Black Caucus in the Arizona State House, uh, chairman or vice chair, I think, of the uh, Western Black Caucus uh, uh, groups from the various legislatures in states out west and very centrally involved in trying to confront voter suppression in Arizona. We'll have uh, uh, Desmond Mead. Some of you may have uh, seen him on 60 Minutes not that long ago. Uh, he's with a group uh, that it, it, the Florida Restoration Rights Group that is focused on specifically on uh, ex-felons and their right to vote and what's happened to Amendment 4 that the people passed to give those uh, ex-felons a right to return to their citizenship and their voting. 
we'll hear from uh, Tomas Lopez from Democracy North Carolina, uh, who also at one point was with the uh, NYU Brennan Center for Justice. And we'll hear from uh, from Cindy Battles, who's with uh, um, the uh, program coordinator, I should say, uh, in, in Georgia for Common Cause. So we're, we're anxious for all that. Portia, welcome. Thanks so much for having me and good to see so many familiar faces on this call Great. as well. <laughs> well, it's an it, it's an honor it's an honor to have you. Uh, we we were all I think uh, our eyes were opened uh, just a, a short time ago when Stacey Abrams um, went through that campaign, where shamefully the Secretary of State, the person in charge of elections, uh, was an elected official who was also on his way to becoming governor, and is now. I assume you'll tell us, actively involved in voter suppression efforts. So you're on the ground uh, in Georgia. Um, I bet you never imagined even a year ago that we'd be here just days away from the election and people would be talking about Georgia as a possible turning point in the whole thing. But what do, what do you, what, let me ask you this, Portia, what, what are your greatest fears? What are your one or two greatest fears about uh, what happens with the result here? Um, well, first, let me say, uh, I definitely expected Georgia to be on everybody's minds <laughs> this close to uh, the election day. I know we've been working really hard the last few years, so I fully expected this. Um, but I think that uh, one of my biggest fears is that people are going to look on election night and are going to see what we're calling a red mirage. Uh, people who voted on election day um, who, uh, and the results will potentially be leaning more um, towards Donald Trump as the winner and that he will declare himself the winner and his supporters will go off and think that they have won. And then in the following days, when we're counting votes, we'll start seeing that um, Joe Biden will take the lead and then the narrative will become, oh, they cheated. Oh, they stole the election. Um, and it will cause so much chaos and um, just so, so much discord and distrust in the process. Um, and are you are you confident, by the way, um, uh, that that the Georgia vote won't come in on election night? I don't think I'm confident in much of anything <laughs> in terms of uh, Georgia's election uh, results that night. Um, I think nationally we will see. Um, you know, of course, we'll definitely have a bunch of results uh, that night. But I think that again, nationally, it'll just create a, a red mirage, and then once things start coming in, uh, as they start counting all of these early votes uh, and these mail-in ballots from all across the country, from all across the world at this point, because we've got a lot of military people who are voting and heck, at this point, people voting from out of space, right? Uh, <laughs> we'll start to see a little bit of a, a better picture and a clearer picture, but a different picture than we might see on election night. Okay. Um, what's happened in Georgia over the past, uh, you know, year or two or three in terms of polling places? Have polling places been closed? Um, so reduced? I definitely want to leave some of this for our uh, specific Georgia person. But uh, what we have seen is that there has been some uncertainty in where some of the polling places are. Um, you know, in general, 
things yeah. move, people are not properly notified. Um, there's been today, we are experiencing the um, uh, aftermath of Hurricane Zeta and that hit us uh, this morning. And so we are seeing power outages across most, uh, much of Georgia uh, where there are now like polling places who can't open uh, because there is no power. And so there's definitely been a lot of uncertainty not just today, uh, but um, over the past few years that uh, have caused, um, again, some some confusion and a lot of that is manufactured confusion, right? Yeah, I didn't mean to uh, suggest that your purview was only Georgia. I know you have <laughs> the, the Georgia roots, but but even, even more broadly, uh, isn't it the case that uh, a lot of polling places have been closed and particularly for people of color? Absolutely, um, I mean, we're seeing it even recently in Texas, where uh, suddenly there can only be one drop box per county. And whereas people thought that they had multiple options, especially in these huge counties of millions and millions of people, now they have to drive hours in some cases to get to one drop off box in the county um, so that they don't have to stand in these inevitably long lines on election day. Um, we've definitely seen polling closures over the past few years, especially with the um, rolling back of the Voting Rights Act. And uh, states have felt more and more emboldened over the past few years um, to make changes that will limit people's access to the ballot. I mean, we all, we all know that, uh, unfortunately, voter suppression has been a very American thing for it's not it's not a recent phenomenon. Definitely not. But it was it was you know, relatively recently that we had Republican presidential candidates such as McCain, Romney uh, and George W. Who didn't seem to pin their whole strategy around shutting people off from the democracy. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, they were they were the, uh, the the kings of inclusion, but they there it was this, that's in stark contrast to what we're seeing from from this president and his people don't you think absolutely i don't think that um at least in recent memory i can uh recall any president uh, sitting in the highest office in the nation calling for such blatant voter suppression doubting every step of our democracy of um our voting process calling into question so many things happening across the country um, and just systematically dismantling people's trust in what should be the most sacred right that we have um, and the fundamental uh, basis of our democracy. So um, it's been very scary to watch. Um, I think every time I get a, an alert that he has tweeted something and it is normally about voting that my heart kind of stops because I know that we're about to have another headache um, trying to make sure that people uh, trust the process, that they know what's really going on and not just listening to conspiracy theories and outright lies. Portia, don't go away. Uh, we're going to have you joined by uh, Reginald Boulding, uh, who I mentioned uh, uh, briefly prior. He's with the Arizona um, state legislature. He is a state legislator and he's with the group called Arizona Coalition for Change. Reginald, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I read a lot about you and I know that, uh, you know, I'm always interested. Um, maybe I'm a lot older than you, but I've tried to straddle in my, in my life, a political life, being an office holder, which I was as a, a, a member of Congress some years ago, but then also trying to, you know, uh, be a responsible citizen and an, <clears throat> an active citizen. And 
I look at your background and there it is. I mean, you're, you know, you're deeply involved in the Arizona legislature. You're, you're uh, using the, the machinery of the democracy as, as you see fit and to your fullest extent. And at the same time, you're still, you got one foot on the outside with people who are, who are pressing and lobbying. Tell us what's going on in Arizona. We're very anxious to hear because as with uh, Georgia and Florida and North Carolina, the other states we're hearing from here, you know, any one, any one of those states could be the difference. Yeah, you know, Arizona is a place right now where, where we're really, um, we're fired up. Uh, over a million uh, ballot returns have already been counted. Um, what we saw in 2018 um, literally uh, motivated uh, our, our community. So we saw four statewide pickups. Uh, we saw the first United States woman, a Democrat elected to statewide office. Uh, we've seen the closest state legislature since 1966. And that set a proof of concept that if we turn out and vote, we win. And Right now, while we know Arizona is a is a battleground state that truly has been built ever since you know SB 1070, um, the Show Me Your Papers law happened back in 2010, and there's been a, a steady growth of registration, turnout, and focus on really changing the electorate. What does suppression look like in Arizona? You know, so we've had several attempts at voter suppression. Uh, from a legislative end uh, all the way to an executive end. So what we have, uh, what we've seen is attempts to uh, kick people off of what we call uh, the pebble or permanent early voting list. Uh, and basically what this says is if you wanna uh, app, you know, have an absentee ballot, uh, you sign up on this list one time and you will always receive your ballot via mail. We've seen legislative efforts to remove people from that. Uh, we were able to defeat that. We've seen efforts to not allow uh, college students to use their uh, their dorm addresses uh, for registration, even if they're living there the most most part of the year, to using their home address. That's the only address that they'd be allowed to use. Uh, we were able to defeat that as well. But now we, our attorney general has something called the Elections Integrity Unit, uh, which is designed to ensure that there is uh, integrity at the polls and integrity within our elections, which just could be used for a number of, of issues that we are that we're keeping our eye out out on. Didn't I think the president uh, created some nice sounding commission about election integrity uh, to investigate the massive fraud that he continues to say is out there, and they closed up shop and decided there there wasn't fraud, as I recall. Yeah, we, we know that there's no claims uh, that have been substantiated with regards to fraud. We know that what the president is doing is he's trying to build a case uh, in order to uh, make the results questionable. And here in Arizona, we passed the law a year ago to allow our uh, county recorders to begin counting ballots two weeks before election day. So on election day, we feel pretty confident that we'll have a good idea of what the results are here in Arizona. I mean, it's here in Arizona, uh, over 80% of, of people vote by mail and they've been doing that for almost 30 years. So this idea that we should no longer trust the mail system is, is a little laughable, especially when I hear uh, some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, when in fact, 
they were elected by mail-in ballots and in so many others for the last, you know, uh, 30 years. So, um, so yeah. Yep. So for those who are keeping score out there, you know, a lot of people out there, and this will be live streamed on YouTube and a lot of people will see the show live. A lot of people see it afterwards, but people are, you know, people who are just really interested uh, and focused on, on next week are trying to figure out now which states do I have to worry about not being decided on the day of November 3rd? Are you saying that Arizona more likely than not will know the result? So we'll know at least 80% of the results by, by, by election day. Um, one thing that, you know, we're going to try to do, so our, our cutoff for people to put their ballot in the mail um, has just hit. So what we were asking people to do was send their ballot in the mail by October 27th, just to ensure it's in on time. Um, so we, we're expecting that, you know, people will show up to the polls. But what we know is, uh, unless there is an extremely close race, and we're talking, right. uh, you know, tens of thousands of votes, thousands of votes, then then it, it will be uncertain. But if we see a substantial margin, if we're talking, you know, three to seven points, we you can be pretty confident uh, mm -hmm. that those thoughts will, will, will carry on. And you've got uh, not just the presidential, but uh, a big Senate race with uh, Kelly versus McSally. Um, McSally being the incumbent who was appointed after being defeated in another Senate race, as I recall. And then you've got, uh, what, a couple of uh, House congressional races that might be close or no? Yeah, so so we like to call um, uh, uh, Senator McSally our, our unelected senator and then our elected senator, which happens to be Kirsten Sinema. Uh, so our, our unelected senator, uh, McSally, she, she has she has she's in for a battle. Um, we know uh, Captain Mark Kelly, he's uh, run a, an amazing campaign and, and we expect we fully expect him uh, to win that race. And what, what we have seen within uh, the GOP uh, with regards to uh, uh, Congressman David Schweiker is that, you know, um, he, he's, he's under several investigations and that has clouded many people in his district to question whether or not they can trust him. So we have a, a congressional district in CD6 with uh, Dr. Hiro T. Bernini, who we think uh, has an excellent opportunity to be elected. How would you characterize your constituents? Uh are they dispirited or depressed or, or how, how, are they, how are they feeling about this or just, just plain worried? You know, I, I think there is a mixture of fatigue, optimism, uncertainty, uh, and excitement all boiled up. It really depends on what side of the bed you wake up uh, because what we know is that we've seen We've seen this story before in which going into election day, you feel like we know what the results are. We know what the outcome is, uh, only to be stunned. Um, and, you know, in, in Arizona in 2016, it was it was extremely bittersweet in which we were able to get rid of one of the most notorious sheriffs uh, in Joe Arpaio and, and remove him from office. But at the same time, we saw President Trump elected, which was just, uh, you know, so that you know, that continuum of uncertainty is is on high alert here. And uh, we, we don't want to let our foot off uh, the pedal until, uh, until Election Day, until 7 p.m. that day. Great. Stay with us. Uh, we're, we're going to uh, go now to Tomas Lopez of Democracy North Carolina. Uh, I, I mentioned him before. Uh, he's coming to the stage right now. Tomas, 
Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart uh, for North Carolina because I'm a Yankee boy. You know, I'm from Connecticut. Um, but uh, I married a, a girl from Lexington, North Carolina, in the Piedmont, just south of, uh, of Winston-Salem. And uh, I spent time campaigning for others in North Carolina. And in 2016, uh, I was one of several people who was full time in the last several weeks helping to run two counties, one Forsyth, where uh, Winston-Salem, Wake Forest is, and then the county where my wife is from below that in, in, um, in Lexington. So, and, and I'm also very um, deeply involved in the Cal Cunningham campaign for Senate as well as a supporter. Um, but thank you for being with us. You have a, a, a great record. What are you seeing on the ground there? And what are your biggest concerns right now? Well, I, again, I, I appreciate your having me on and, and my being on with a number of really effective and, and great advocates. I think, you know, we're watching a number of things in North Carolina in terms of voting access, right? We went into uh, the fall aware of certain issues that we knew were going to affect voting in the pandemic context, right? One was a sharp increase in people voting by mail. So unlike a state like Arizona, mail voting is not very popular traditionally in North Carolina. Only 4% of ballots cast in the 2016 general election were mail ballots. This year so far, we've already had over 800,000 absentee ballots submitted, a million, a million 400,000 requested. Um, so again, a much larger proportion of people voting by mail and people having to navigate that process. Second thing, you know, we knew that there was going to be a need for increased access to in-person voting to accommodate social distancing. And third, we were generally aware of obviously an, in an intense atmosphere around the election, plenty of first-time voters voting by mail for the first time, confusion over voting rules, things that we see in every high turnout election year, but heightened by everything coming into this year. What we've seen so far are number one, people are voting in really large numbers, just like they are everywhere else. Two. We are seeing so far that um, some of the things that have been put in place to make mail voting more accessible, I think are helping increase the rate of absentee ballots that are accepted. So in our primary, 86% of absentee ballots were accepted. So far, 98% have been accepted in the general election. So it's a pretty sharp increase. Again, we want that number much closer to 100, but that increase is pointing in the right direction. And that's where a lowered witness requirement helps in litigation where we've been successful in winning a cure process for people to fix problems with their ballots before they're just thrown out. It, 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 I've, I've been saying this for years and it's not exactly profound, but I think it's important for people to, to have some focus on. Doesn't it matter who the governor is in terms of the electoral machinery and how much voter suppression there is? I remember in 2016 in your state, we faced huge problems from uh, the governor at the time, who, who now Governor Cooper uh, defeated. But the, the governor does control a lot of the machinery or can, right? Well, I, I would actually draw some important distinctions here, right? We've got 50 states and 50 different sets of rules for how elections are run. So in over 30 states, an elected secretary of state runs elections, and that direct elected official has a lot of control. I think we've seen in some states, you know, we can think of Kansas under Chris Kobach, where an elected official running an election can really, you know, have, I think we see a harmful influence on voter, voter access. In 
North Carolina, the governor does appoint the majority of members of our state board of elections, but that does operate as an agency independent from both the governor and the general assembly, which I think is an advantage, right? And we've got our, our, our state board of elections, our 100 different county boards of elections, which also provide important points for people to go in and affect decisions at the local level. So as important as the government, as the governor and other pe people that the governor appoints are, so many of the things that are actually important in terms of counting votes, the way rules work, where polling places get, get end up getting placed, a lot of that is a very local process actually. The, as we, you know, this, the, the name of this show is November 4th. We created it many, many months ago because we wanted people the day after the election to start to reimagine what a new country, new country looks like in many respects. So one of those respects would be our democracy and access to it and who controls the, the machinery of the democracy and so forth and so on. What, what's the point of having an elected official himself or herself be in charge of votes and counting votes? Isn't it, isn't it sort of crazy? Shouldn't I mean, we have a, shouldn't we have a, speaking of independent commissions, I mean, shouldn't we have a non-elected appointed committee, even if it's bipartisan, to, to play the role of the Secretary of State when it comes to election time? One of the things that you point out that's really important is trying to separate politics from election administration. You know, what we've had, you know, I, I think in, in much of the country over the last few decades, and in some ways it's not new, but it's been heightened. You know, I think certainly Florida 2000 was a really important turning point in this in recent history, right, is a depoliticization of, elect, of election administration. Now, you can go back to Jim Crow. You can go back to the ways in which election administration has always been tied in many ways to the politics of the moment. But if we can have professional election administration, if you can separate it from politics, that is an advantage, right? That you, um, you know, elections, regardless of who is taking part in them, are for everybody, and they need to be run in a way that's for everybody, right? And I do think, you know, there are benefits even where you have structures like in North Carolina, where it's not one elected official. There are probably even ways in which you can improve on it and sort of insulate that political, that process from some of the day-to-day -day politics. I mean, in some ways it's, yeah. it's consistent with redistricting, right? We, you think right. about what happens after this election, you think about 2021, all over the country, we're going to be drawing new maps. And, you know, you talk about, you know, the incentives of the people drawing the maps. That's going to be a really big thing next year. Absolutely. But stay with us. Don't go away. We're going to, we're going to bring to the stage now, Cindy Battles, who's the uh, program coordinator for Common Cause of Georgia. We've had, We've had some common cause guests on this show in the past weeks and months, and they've always just contributed so, so mightily. I might add that one of my former colleagues in Congress many years ago was Bob Edgar, uh, who became head of common cause nationally and unfortunately passed away a few years ago. He's very much miss Bob. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Good to have so, you. Great. So, what what's your uh, what's your biggest what's your biggest fear on the ground there? What what uh, you imagine yourself on Wednesday morning or Wednesday night or Thursday morning? Looking back, what uh, what do you what are you going to be thinking about? 
I mean, the number one thing, and I think other people have also covered it, I'm not necessarily convinced that we're going to know the results Wednesday morning or Thursday morning, right? Um, I think we need to think about the fact that people are using vote by mail and absentee ballots in untold numbers um, for this election. And we need to make sure that we give states time to count those ballots. So I think my number one concern is people's expectations because we are so used to knowing um, who's going to be the next president when we go to bed. So that messaging is really important that we make sure people know that we need to count every vote. Um, I think the other concern that I have is we know that this new system that the Secretary of State has bought, Dominion, um, has not performed well. Um, in the elections that it's been involved in so far. Um, we've seen long lines as a result of the bandwidth and the e-poll books. Um, so I think that we could see the same thing happen on November 3rd. Um, so I think that's probably one of my biggest concerns is how this is actually going to work. Because we know that there are deliberate attempts to suppress the vote. And then we know that there are situations where the vote is disenfranchised because of lack of resources or um, bad systems, or even in the state of Georgia, areas that don't have adequate bandwidth to do the things that they need to do with these systems. Tell us again, what percentage of the vote uh, will, will have been cast by election day? So right now, the way it's looking at least, I mean, we're at about 47% of registered voters who have already cast their ballot. Um, we've got today and tomorrow for early voting, and we know that absentee ballots are still coming in. Are there long little, lines? Long lines? Um, there have been long lines, yes. Um, especially the first day of early voting, um, which was in large part because the bandwidth for the e-poll books wasn't where it needed to be. So it was taking twice as long to process every voter. Um, and then we've just seen long lines because in some counties, they have one early voting location. Um, we really needed the HEROES Act and that extra election funding to help staff and give resources to our counties, um, especially when you look at the economic crisis we're in as a result of COVID-19. Do people, have you found uh, many instances where people wait for hours in line and then get up there and find out that they've been removed from the rolls or you know, they don't have the proper or whatever ID or whatever. Does that happen much? Oh, absolutely. That's happened, um, especially when lines are long and they don't know about the My Voter page website that they can go check to make sure that they're um, that they have the right um, ID, that their voter status is where it needs to be, that kind of thing. Um, so that's one of the things that I would tell your listeners is to go to mvp.ga.gov before they go vote. Because one of the things that we're going to see on Tuesday is a lot of people's polling locations have changed. So they're going to stand in line for hours and find out they're at the wrong polling location. And they're going to have to vote provisionally and then go back to their county election office to cure that provisional ballot. And when things go wrong like that, are there people there that can help them? Yes. So we have a number of people on the ground. Um, we have recruited about 1,200 um, non-partisan poll monitor volunteers. We're going to be in 90 counties. Um, right now, we've trained about three-fourths of those volunteers. Um, they'll be wearing a shirt that's easily recognizable, and it'll have the hotline, which is 866-R-VOTE. 
um, again, that number is 866-OUR-VOTE, um, so that they can get the help that they need. Now, is that, is that a coalition that's doing that, or is that Common Cause, or? It is. A, the Election Protection Coalition is 13 organizations in Georgia that work on voting rights and making sure that everybody gets to cast their ballot. All, all civil society, uh, nonprofit. Exactly. All nonpartisan um, C3s who just want everyone to be able to cast their ballot the way that we believe everyone has the right to vote should. Good. I'm going to ask our uh, producer, Olivia, to bring uh, our other guests back uh, uh, because we have some questions, one of which is about COVID. Um, how, how is COVID impacting in any way that sort of manifests itself so you can actually say this is a COVID impact? So one of the things that I think it's done is obviously we're seeing a record number of people asking for absentee ballots because they don't feel like it's safe going outside. Um, for whatever reason, the Secretary of State decided to use Runback, um, a company in Arizona, to um, process those again. So we saw an issue where people didn't believe that they were getting their absentee ballot because it was taking three weeks instead of the three to five days that it does when the counties um, process them themselves. So there's been a lot of confusion in that area. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is the number of counties that are just working super diligently to try and process all those absentee ballots. I've talked to a number of county election officials that are, I mean, in Jones County, they only have two full-time staff. Um, and so they're working, you know, crazy number of hours to try and get those processed. Georgia has allowed that um, counties are able to scan those absentee ballots. They can't tally them yet. So that's kind of helping the process. But again, this goes back to what we were talking about before, where the HEROES Act funding would have come in really handy because those counties could have hired additional staff to help do this. Just, um, and just to make that clear, that's the, that's the funding that's been in dispute um, between Speaker Pelosi and uh, the White House for weeks and weeks. The House in Washington passed funding and has been on record, public record, as being in support of that. Um, and and that, I think that's what you're referring to, right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. It passed the House. It didn't go anywhere in the Senate. And then um, they tried to negotiate another Bar, they tried to negotiate another bill, but Speaker McConnell, you know, he basically tabled that in favor of rushing through a SCOTUS justice. Let me ask Portia about the COVID. What do you, you're, you have a multi-state view. What do you, what are you seeing? Um, I think uh, that exactly what uh, was just said was correct. Um, we are seeing a high number of people, of course, who are requesting mail-in ballots, which of course leads to, um, in some places, uh, just overwhelming number of um, local election officials who are overwhelmed, right? We're also seeing, of course, some states, this is the first time they've um, allowed uh, mail-in ballots at this sort of level before without like more ex uh, more limited scope of excuses. And so they are just uh, overwhelmed and underprepared again, because uh, COVID funding was passed uh, for elections back in May with the HEROES Act, and it has been sitting there and we were not able to get the 4 billion that um, everybody agreed that we needed uh, in order to make this process a lot more smoothly. Right, Tomas, 
I'm sorry, Tomas, what about, what about the COVID uh, impact in North Carolina? Do you see it? I, absolutely. And, and we have a significant increase in the use of absentee by mail votes, ballots. A uh, major, mm-hmm. major increase in that this year. Uh, we have rules that have been changed because of it. Uh, you know, and I think fortunately what we've also seen is this pretty dramatic increase in early voting hours in North Carolina. So more places where people can vote uh, in general. And I think that's a, that is a good thing. How about poll watchers? Is it taking its toll in terms of not enough poll watchers or are you okay there? Well, I mean, I think what we are seeing in terms of staffing is that so far we're holding up okay. I, just today, actually, there there is a situation in a in a, in a rural county where there is a, a site that's dealing with a, a COVID outbreak among some poll workers, and and that county is working on on filling some gaps there. But thankfully, we're seeing much less of that than we might have feared. Uh, certainly, going into the fall, we have a Reginald. We have a question that's Arizona specific for you uh, from one of our uh, um, participants, viewers, and that is. Um, how close are you to taking control by Democrats of the legislature? Can it happen this year? If not, when? And most importantly, if and when it does, what changes would you, as one of the leaders of elections reform activities, what would you uh, be, be promoting and, and sponsoring? Yeah, so to the question, how close, this close, and I'll, I'll get specific, right? So there's a 31 29 uh, difference between Republicans and Democrats in the House. So there's 31 Republicans, 29 Democrats. So there is a, we're one, one seat away from a tie, two from the majority. And in the Senate, there are 13 Democrats and 17 Republicans. So two votes away from a tie, three from a majority. And you know, all the likelihood is about 90% likely that we will absolutely take the house. Um, and uh, it's looking extremely likely that the Senate will, the margins will narrow if it won't flip. Uh, and that's important, you know, just taking control of one chamber allows us to really put a check on the governor who has had, you know, not only the the House and Senate for a number of years. So uh, what we truly believe is that it's going to allow us to first and foremost, make sure that democracy is a top priority because we have so many people here in Arizona, if they could have access to participate in democracy, they'd be voting. And we'd ensure that year after year after year, we have people with progressive ideas that are actually going to be elected. So tackling, you know, uh, democracy reforms, making sure that we're standing up for our public education, those are going to be some of the top priorities that we that we lead into. And we feel extremely confident that uh, on election night, we'll be able to say for the first time since 1966, uh, the House has actually flipped. Unlike some of the other states we've heard from, it seems like you're farther ahead in mail-in ballots, right? In terms of how that system works and how it's used. Yeah. So yes. Yep. So we, so you don't, you, you're not looking for big changes there, right? So I mean, the biggest thing that we want to make sure is that we are still providing uh, an opportunity for people to participate in ways like same-day voter registration. We see a lot of places around the country that has same-day voter registration. Arizona has the capability to do that. Um, there's also opportunities for us to look at some of our 
um, our campaign finance reforms. Uh, you know, we we're seeing incredibly large sums of money being spent in our elections, um, and you know, we want to make sure that we are strengthening uh, democracy in those aspects, giving people um, an automatic voter registration. You know, and we want to give people more opportunities to participate. And Cindy, what are the what are the in Georgia? What are the biggest, the one or two top uh, election reform uh, measures that you would promote? So there are actually two of them that we're working on this coming legislative session. One of those is we want to see voting rights restored for returning citizens. Um, we know that historically speaking, crimes of moral turpitude was added to the constitution to disenfranchise certain people. So we have been working on legislation that defines moral turpitude and would restore the right to vote to thousands of returning citizens. And then our next step would be um, taking that even further so that both formerly and currently incarcerated people would be able to exercise the right to vote. Um, the second thing that we're trying to do is pass legislation for vote centers because we know a lot of polling locations are difficult to get to. Um, we know that they are steadily closing polling locations. So if we had vote centers in counties, then residents of the county could just like when what, what we do during early voting, right? They could go to any yeah. polling location in their county and cast their vote, which is going to be a huge thing when you're getting off work at five and you've still got to go, you know, get your kids and fix dinner and that kind of thing. So those are two big pieces of legislation we'd like to see passed in 2021. Great. Um, we have another question um, from the audience, which is... Uh, it's basically it's very much like some like one of the one of the previous questions, except in this respect. Do you think that in five years from now, mail in voting will be the thing as oh, opposed to in person? Yeah, I think it's I mean, I think it's the thing now. I think that if we get this process right, um, more and more people are going to be voting absentee. Um, more and more people have used it these days. They see how convenient it is. Um, I think that there are definitely ways we can improve the process, including who we have processing our absentee ballots. But um, yeah, I think that as people trust this process, um, and remember, it is a pr process that you can trust, right? We this has been around since the Civil War, for crying out loud. Yeah, apparently, um, even a guy named Donald Trump trusts it when it comes to his own uh, his own mailing mail in or however he does it, right? With in Florida. Right. Yeah. And we want everyone to be just as confident as the president in, is in casting their vote by mail. You agree with that, Portia? Absolutely. Um, yeah. We know that this is safe and secure and it's been time tested. So <laughs> I think yeah. that this is going to be the new trend. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you both. And thank the, our other guests uh, for, for joining us. It was It was really interesting. And we knew that if we could find people who were actually uh, on the ground, fighting these battles, fighting against voter suppression, that it would uh, it would be very, very useful. And judging from the response and the questions, I think that's been the case. As I said at the top of the show, uh, Abigail Omajola is off today. She'll be back. And we hope to see you. The name of this show is November 4th. We didn't anticipate we'd be doing a show on November 4th necessarily many months ago when we uh, came up with this idea for the show. But we are, we're planning one for uh, next Wednesday, the day after Election Day. So we hope you'll you'll join us then. 
uh, until then, thanks and take care.